Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to the August uh, edition of my construction webinar series. My name is Tashia Rasool. I am a partner here at Lois Law Firm. Uh, of course, I'm having, never mind, I thought I was having technical difficulties with my PowerPoint. My name is Tashia Rasool. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm. Uh, where I practice um, defense of workers' compensation claims in New York. My focus is only on uh, accidents arising out of construction claims. I oversee the team that handles only construction-related workers' compensation claims. And um, as you may also know, I am the author of the uh, Construction Defense Handbook for New York. Uh, we launched it last year. If you have not yet received a copy, please let me know. I can send you a hard copy or a PDF copy also. Uh, if today's your first time here, um, welcome. If it's not your first time and you've been watching me for the past uh, year and a half, more than year and a half actually, thank you for coming back. I've been, appreciate, uh, I've been getting a lot of questions from you offline. I really appreciate it. Some of you I've gotten back to a little late and it's because for some reason your email is wound up in my spam folder and I'm, I've been finding them weeks later. So I do apologize for the late response, but keep sending me all the emails, the questions, and I will get back to you. All right, so let's get into today. What are we going to discuss? Now, just a quick recap. <clears throat> the focus, the purpose of these webinars is to provide some highlights, information, some strategies, how to defend uh, construction workers' compensation claims, and um, more importantly, how to do a joint defense with uh, the general liability claim. So this year, we've talked about wrap-ups, what's a wrap-up, you know, how to identify them, uh, the, the, the issues or the, that, that, that can arise in a, in a wrap-up situation, how to overcome those issues, best practices for coordinating defense. Um, Today, we're going to talk about some of the milestones in the workers' compensation claim and the general liability claim that we should be aware of. And these are markers. At these points, we should be talking about, um, you know, what's next with our either general liability counterpart or the workers' compensation counterpart. So I'll go through some of the workers' comp milestones. I'll go through some of the general liability milestones. And I'll give you some real-life examples of strategies, a couple that I recently um, was involved in, and then one that I have later this week, we'll talk about those as well. And at the end, there will be a live question and answer session. So if you have a question, type it into the box. It looks like this. Hopefully it's going to pop up on my end and I'll give you an answer. If not, definitely send me an email. We've adjusted our spam filters. So hopefully all of your emails are going to come through and I'll get back to you very, very shortly after I get the emails. All right. Let's get into it. So what's the importance of the milestones? <clears throat> As I've talked about several times over and over, the workers' compensation claim and the general liability claim, they move at very different pace. Guess which one moves at a faster pace? The workers' comp claim, right? I mean, we can go from the beginning to the end of a workers' comp claim, and the GL claim is now chugging along like a little snail. It's now starting, right? So I think um, this is important because everything that we do in the workers' compensation claim could impact the general liability claim. And as the milestones arise, and they do very quickly, it's important for us to think, oh wait, 
let me talk to my GL counterpart, whether it's the adjuster or have your workers' comp attorney talk to the general liability attorney. Let's see what's going on in their claim. Let's see what they can do with the information that's now present at this milestone. So all, all being said and done, the workers' comp side of the, you know, the, the, the litigation that's going on has to be on top of everything so as to essentially set up the general liability claim. Milestones involve some type of a development or discovery. In the workers' compensation side, it could be uh, the scheduling of a hearing, um, a trial, receipt of an IME report, some kind of new information, or there's been a turn in events that could change the course of the claim for the better or for the worse. The good thing about these milestones is that they can be used in the other claim. Everything that happens in the workers' comp claim um, either can definitely be used for as, as, as a benefit to the general liability side or just providing the development or the information to the general liability side can help with their strategy, if not directly with the way they're litigating their, cl their claim or planning and litigating their claim. So the best practice is Really, workers' compensation and general liability counsel should be assigned from day one. When I went over um, you know, how to come up with a plan for defending these claims jointly, I talked about the importance of assigning counsel from the very first day, even your workers' compensation counsel. I know I've talked to a lot of clients and they usually assign just general liability counsel in the beginning because of the potential exposure on that end and they're the ones who would usually go out for the initial investigation, but more and more clients are really liking the idea of also assigning workers' compensation attorneys from the very beginning so that they can start working on strategy and joint defense. So I'd recommend that, I'd highly recommend it. All right, so let's talk about some of the workers' compensation milestones. The very beginning of the claim, we have to determine whether the claim is compensable or not. And we have to make that determination soon. So it starts with the employer's knowledge of the accident. It's required that it be provided within 30 days of notice. Um, quite honestly, with catastrophic construction claims, notice is usually not an, in, uh, like an issue because it's such a big accident. Uh, everyone's notified immediately when it happens. Where this becomes an issue is where the, the bogus claims that we see, like nothing happened and witness accidents, you know, uh, I tripped and fell when there was supposedly no one around. That's when it becomes an issue. In any event, from the moment that the employer has knowledge of, you know, an accident or an allegation of an accident, the, the employer and carrier need to start taking action. So if the claim is being accepted, it, we have to go by the what's known as the 1810 rule in New York in terms of um, when to issue payments. Uh, this is governed by uh, workers' compensation law section 25.1. And what it says is that payments must be made, if you're accepting the claim, payments must be made within 18 days of lost time or 10 days after the employer has knowledge of loss. So it's very important to keep this in mind. Otherwise, you can be subject to penalties by the Workers' Compensation Board by not filing um, uh, a, a FROI in indicating whether you actually, I'm sorry, indicated, uh, accepting or denying the claim. All right, so if it's a denied claim and these 
it, it's very, very crucial. Uh, if, if you miss a deadline for the acceptance of a claim, it's not the end of the world. There's a small penalty. I know we want to avoid the penalties because it goes against the carrier's ratings, but it's also not the end of the world and the end of the claim. It's not detrimental to the claim. If we miss the deadline to timely deny a claim though, that can be detrimental, not only to the workers' comp claim, but to your general liability counterpart, right? Um, <clears throat> for denials, it must be filed within 25 days of the notice of indexing, which is the EC84. But something to keep in mind, there's no deadline for the board to issue an EC84. So in some cases, you'll see it a couple of days after the board file is uh, created and you know there's e-case access and so forth. And in some cases, you don't see them for months. And I've seen cases where an EC84 has actually never been issued. So keeping this in mind, let's never, ever, ever wait for the EC84 to file denial documents. I think denial documents should be filed in the very beginning. Even if you're uncertain about whether you're going to accept or deny the claim, it's better to file a denial because you can always withdraw it. However, if the timeline has passed and you missed the deadline, um, you're gonna lose your defenses. So if the denial is not filed within 24 days of the notice of indexing, you will lose all of your jurisdictional defenses and that can be really detrimental to the claim, all right? So my tip here would be to deny from the outset and you can always withdraw if you're changing your mind about compensability uh, as a result of um, more information that comes in, investigation and so forth. All right, some additional uh, workers' compensation milestones. For denied cases, <clears throat> The pre-hearing conference would be the first hearing that we go to. The pre-hearing conference is scheduled when uh, a denial is filed and the claimant submits medicals. If there's no medical submitted to the board file, the board is not going to schedule a pre-hearing conference. So that's something we're always on the lookout for, right? Has medicals been filed? And honestly, an MRI uh, report is not a medical. Uh, C8.1 is not a medical. It has to be an actual medical report from the claimant's doctor indicating, you know, there's been a work accident and linking the work accident to the, um, the injuries that the claimant is claiming. All parties must file a PH 16.2 10 days before the pre-hearing conference. It's my practice to uh, file the, uh, the, pre, the, the PH 16.2, also known as the pre-hearing conference statement, as soon as the denial is filed. Why wait until 10 days before the hearing, you run the risk of missing that deadline. What can be done if it needs to be amended, and usually it's it's amended to include witness names, you can file an amended PH 16.2, but definitely get the, um, the, the first one in when the denial is being filed in your end. So the FROI 04 or the SROI 04, contact your attorney saying, I'm filing this, can you file your PH 16.2 also? At the pre-hearing conference, this is where the issues are supposed to be hashed out. Generally, the judges would send it, set, set it for trial. No one really discussed like all of the issues, but in order to be fully prepared and address anything that your adversary could throw at you, your attorney should be prepared to offer a proof, provide an offer of proof of the defenses. Why exactly are you denying this claim? Because you don't wanna run 
the risk of having a frivolous controversy being you know, raised and found against you. Um, if possible, cite any statutory and case citations. This way, everyone knows you're serious from the very beginning. And you know, we've actually seen cases change course when we start citing to uh, case law or any kind of statutes or any sort of precedent by the board. Also, we need to produce medical and lay witnesses in um, at, at a trial, and we should be including the names of our witnesses in the pre uh, the pre hearing conference. Otherwise, you could be precluded from producing those witnesses. So another tip would be all the names you can come up with, just put it in your pre-hearing conference statement. But by the time the pre-hearing conference comes around, you should be narrowing down those witnesses with your attorney. Otherwise, you might be you might be at the wrath of a judge saying, well, you're not producing 20 witnesses. You got to tell me which ones are the most relevant and not repetitive testimony. So all of that information needs to be provided uh, to your to your attorney. Just a reminder, we can go from accident to pre-hearing conference in just a matter of weeks. When the board issues its hearing notice, it's usually about two weeks before the hearing. So if a denial is filed today, medicals are filed next week, and the board issues a hearing notice, in about a month, we could be at a pre-hearing conference. So let's just keep that in mind. This is how quickly it moves along. Okay, so as the case goes along, we're gonna get an IME. I haven't yet litigated a case where we don't get an IME. The IME is the key to our defense, right? The, uh, the medicals, as you know, drive the claim in terms of degree of disability, additional body parts, need for treatment, so forth. Our IME is the way to contest all of that. So we need to get frequent IMEs. As soon as we get an IME report, whether it's good or bad, and especially if it's bad, we need to be calling our GL counterpart and telling them the bad news, okay? It's um, it's something they need to know uh, when they're addressing the body parts that are being claimed on their end, when they get their bill of, bill of, bill of particulars, um, they can compare what's being claimed as to what our IME is finding as causal related, and they have a sense of where their, their claim is going to go if those body parts were established in the workers' comp claim. Surgery requests and approval, as we know, the uh, surgeries drive up the exposure in your claim, and especially on the general liability side. A surgery can make, uh, you know, be the difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we try to contest those, but anytime there's a request for a surgery and an approval, or again, like an IME commenting on the surgery, we need to be talking to GL, letting them know this is what's going to happen. And of course, provide our opinion to them, right? Do we think it's going to be approved? Do we think it's not going to be approved? All of that's part of the coordination. Depositions. When our doctors are deposed on the workers' comp side, the IME and the claimant's doctors, if it goes well, communicate that with the other side. If it doesn't go well, again, communicate it with the other side. Um, general liability, they don't usually use our IME because they get their own, but it's 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 good to give them an idea of where it, our case is going to go because our IME is going to help to shape the course for our case. And the same thing with the depositions. Claimant's testimony. Anytime the claimant is testified in the workers' compensation claim, whether it's at the trial or even if it's a regular hearing about work status or labor market attachment or fraud, 
it's perfectly fine to turn over those minutes, the hearing minutes, to the general liability side for them to use however they can use it. Suspension of benefits, this is big, both in the workers' comp side and the general liability side. It helps them to calculate their, calculate their potential damages, uh, depending on the reason for suspension of benefits. Um, if the claimant has been found to return to work, and that's why we're suspending benefits, that's an important milestone because that's going to impact the potential value of the general liability claim and, of course, the workers' comp claim too, right? Because if the claimant has returned to work, let's say, for his pre-injury wages and there's no reduced earnings claim, we can almost be certain that we're done and in indemnity benefits and then hopefully <clears throat> the treatment's going to minimize also. So the goal is always to push the claimant to return to work in such a situation. Labor market attachment, you know, when we're trying to push the claimant to return to work, this is something to be communicated, whether it's a win or not. Um, they also need to know because sometimes there's conflicting information as to whether the claimant intends to return to work. GL, the claimant's GL attorney is telling the, um, the defense GL attorney the claimant is not going back to work or he cannot go to work, whereas in our end, he's saying, okay, I'm gonna go look for work. We have a labor market attachment trial, so it's good to keep everyone on the same page. Change in medical status. Um, this could be anything from the claimant hasn't treated in five months, something's going on there, or he's now actively treating after having to return to work for six months. He's treating again, doctors are talking about surgery, this is something should be that should be in everyone's radar. And in this regard, we should also be thinking of any kind of like a potential like subsequent accidents also. <clears throat> fraud findings. This is extremely important because a fraud finding in the workers' comp claim can be used as like leverage for settlement, not only in the comp claim, but also in the general liability claim. I currently have a case um, that's being set for a reserve decision on the issue of fraud, and there's a there's a um, a general liability component also. So we're currently trying to negotiate a global settlement uh, of the workers' comp claim and the general liability claim. I spoke with general liability counsel last week, and they have indicated that the claimant's general liability attorney is concerned about the fraud finding, so they've actually made a demand, kind of a reasonable demand, and we think it can be resolved, both the GL and the workers' comp claim uh, all together. So we're hoping for a resolution before uh, the board issues a reserve decision, because of course, you know, it's a 50-50 gamble as to whether the judge is gonna make a fraud finding or not. All right, so let's talk now about some general liability milestones. The GL claim, it's less milestones, but they're bigger milestones, if that makes sense. Um, in the workers' comp claim, there's just a lot of things going on at a very fast pace. On the general liability side, less things going on, but they're in, um, in a bigger impact on the claim. So the general liability claim starts off with the filing of a complaint or a notice of claim. If it's a public entity, there has to be a notice of claim and something called a 50-H hearing is done within uh, 90 days of the notice of claim. I do have public, um, public entity clients, um, so I see a lot of the 50-H uh, transcripts 
and I'm always requesting them. And I can tell you, they're extremely important for use in the, um, the workers' compensation claim. This week, I have a compensability trial in the workers' comp claim, and the 50H has already been conducted in the GL claim. So I'll be perusing that transcript to see if I can use anything from it to uh, attack the claimant's credibility at trial, maybe pursue fraud if there's inconsistent statements, because remember the 50H uh, deposition, the 50H hearing is a sworn, it's sworn statements by the claimant. There's a court reporter taking it. Um, so it's always good to, you know, ask if, if you're working with a public entity, do you have the 50H transcript? When is it going to be done? Can I get it? Preliminary conference on the GL side, this is where the parties come together and they talk about, you know, the, the current issues, potential issues, the judges try to narrow down issues, um, set it for discovery. Uh, it's usually not set for trial, so um, early in the case, but at least the, the parties are going to have an idea of where it's going to go. At this point, you know, depending on the claim, depending on the type of accident that it is, uh, I've seen GL uh, attorneys start to kind of like poke around for interest in potential settlement or mediation. So it's always good to get a report from them after the preliminary conference to see where the claimant's attorneys are planning on taking their case. Interrogatory responses, if these are received in the general liability side, it's good for us to have them, again, just to see what's going on, if there's anything we can use on the workers' comp side. Any records they receive, so they usually get their own releases from the claimant for prior records, for medical records. Um, of course, subject to HIPAA, uh, as long as there is a release, the information can be provided to the workers' compensation side, and the same thing, the workers' comp medicals can be provided to the general liability side as long as the releases are in place. IME and other expert reports, these are good um, <clears throat> on, on like for the, the workers' comp to like at least just a review. And I say that because we can't use them in actual litigation of our claims. Our, we can only use our IMEs and the claimant's doctor's reports. But my eyes, when I'm looking at anything I get from the general liability side, the number one thing I'm focused on is, can, can I find fraud? Like, can I find like some element of fraud that I can throw in the workers' comp claim and just kind of like rock the boat a little, right? So we're looking for inconsistencies. So an example with the IME reports or any expert reports would be something like, the claimant on our side is saying, telling the IME doctor he can return to work, whereas the IME on the general liability side is finding capabilities of you know, him being able to go back to work, or the claimant's telling them that they want to go back to work. The same thing with vocational expert reports. On our side, oftentimes they're saying, oh, my claimant's totally disabled, he can be rehabilitated, and then we get a report that shows that he indeed can be rehabilitated. We've used those at permanency trials in an effort to get reduced ELWIC findings, and we've been successful with those. So definitely ask for those. Anytime you hear the GLSI talking about them, say, hey, can I have a copy of that, please? Depositions. Depositions in the GLSI, they're way more detailed uh, in depth and in depth than on the workers' comp side. Again, just like the 50H hearings, um, we can get those reports. Uh, Look, look, you know, read them through to see what the claimant testified to and see if there's any way we can use them in our end to pursue fraud, contest additional body parts, a degree of disability. Um, 
if, if there's any indication of like prior injuries that he didn't disclose in Iran, that's something to take, um, you know, to, to look for also. Settlement demand. When a settlement demand comes in on a general liability side, this is big. And this is big because we know the way these claims work in New York, right? It's really a money mill for the plaintiff's attorneys. Um, every claim they file, they expect to receive at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in recovery. When they are issuing a settlement demand, even before there's been any kind of a talk about um, you know, potential settlement, that's usually a red flag. That's usually because they know that either in their jurisdiction that they're not going to get a good trial win, or they know that there's something wrong with their case. They're, you know, like they're going to lose on a summary judgment motion, or there's really no accident and they're just trying to like wrap it up without any further discovery that can hurt their claim. So whenever a demand comes in, uh, the GL counterparts that I work with, they would set up a call right away saying, this is what we have. Can you tell us what's going on in the comp claim? It's kind of weird. Their demand's kind of low, kind of reasonable. And then we talk about it and try to come up with, um, you know, a, a good way to resolve both of the claims. Finally, mediation. Mediation is something that we usually participate in um, as the Workers' Comp Defense Council. It's something, it's a service we offer to our clients, and I think it's very important. I've attended a couple of mediation over the past month, and huh, thankfully, they've all settled the global settlement with the Workers' Comp and GL claim, a $0 Section 32, either a waiver of the lien or a partial waiver of the lien and the claims were disposed of for a very, very small amount. Anytime uh, GL has indicated that there is a mediation, I think you should be speaking with your clients as to whether you should um, or whether you can't attend the mediation. I'll tell you, my role at a mediation is to set the record straight, all right? Um, I've seen cases where on the general liability side, they're saying, oh, this claimant is gonna go get the surgery. I'm like, hold on, wait. No, it's been denied by the board. There hasn't been an appeal file. The surgery is not happening. Or on the other side, they don't know there's like a potential fraud thing going on. And, you know, we're, we're um, <clears throat> really clearing things up, letting the attorneys know. And we're also able to participate, participate in the mediation. So you get to speak with the, um, the mediator as well and be a part of the process. I think it's very helpful uh, for, for, you know, in, in terms of, trying to get the best settlement for your client. Um, <clears throat> leaving the workers' comp in the dark can really affect your, your lien situation negatively. And you can also run the risk of leaving your workers' comp claim open when you're able, when you would otherwise be able to settle it out for a zero dollar or some kind of like a nominal amount along with the GL claim. So mediation, raise your hand, pay a uh, GL attorney, GL adjuster, can we be involved in it also, okay? All right, so what should be, we be doing at the milestone? So I've been going through it as I bring up the milestones. The number one thing that we should be doing is communicating, right? We're talking to each other. For me, after I send the post-hearing update to my clients, I would send a quick email to the general liability uh, defense attorney saying, hey, we just had this hearing, we got a fraud finding, uh, we can talk about this, but just wanted to give you the heads up, see what you can do with it in your end. The conversations, uh, they can be brief. You know, it's nothing formal. 
Um, they're all within uh, uh, any kind of like a HIPAA restriction or privileges. Um, it's just providing updates and what's happening in the claim. Similarly, when something happens in the GL side, so for example, when a mediation scheduled or they get a demand or you know they get an amended bill of particulars, they usually send me an email saying, hey, this is what's going on. We should probably have a call with the client to see what the next steps are. Um, <clears throat> we should be discussing, and this is important, we should be discussing the potential implications of the milestones in each side. And this is where your expertise and my expertise comes into play, right? I've tried many, many of these cases. I've handled hundreds of workers' comp claims. After a while, I can tell you this client, this claimant's going to get surgery based on uh, the doctor he's been treating with, based on the judge that were before, um, based on the court, you know, which, whichever hearing point that we're in. I can, I can almost predict. Uh, what's going to happen in a potential case. And this is why you need attorneys who are well experienced and who know how the system really works to provide an insight as to where we think the case is going to go as these milestones develop. Another thing is we've had um, <clears throat> IMEs that are very detrimental to our case. And, you know, I've come to, my team has come to start recommending that our clients not use particular IMEs because we can tell you what their findings are going to be and what they're going to say about the surgery and the prior injury. Um, <clears throat> so it's good to you know, have attorneys who've been doing this for quite a while and who know construction claims very well. Discuss implications. When a milestone occurs, the, the effects of the milestone may not um, be seen right away, right? So we might get an IME, nothing happens for several months because the claimant hasn't filed the RFA to get the additional body parts um, established. Or we've raised fraud, but we're still waiting for the hearing. But instead of waiting for the hearing or waiting for the claimant to do something or for us to do something um, when, when it's a good result or you know for the claimant to do something when it's not a good result, uh, we should start thinking about where it's gonna go, where the claim could potentially go. And the one thing we're always keeping in the back of our minds is can we potentially resolve this without litigation. And I'm not I'm not talking about, oh, stipulating to something or just agreeing something. I'm talking about global settlements, right? Can we nip this in the bud be before it becomes something really big and messy? Implement a strategy. Every time I, I get off a, a conference call with, you know, my adjuster, the client, GL adjuster, the GL defense counsel, there's always an action plan. GL is going to do this. Workers' comp is going to do this. I'm going to do this and it's gonna be done within 60 days, right? As these milestones occur, we find a need for maybe additional surveillance, um, additional social media checks, um, additional subpoenas need to be issued for prior records. Uh, maybe we need to file an RFA to bring the matter back in the calendar. Whatever it is, there must be an action plan at the end of the discussion. To me, if there's not an action plan at the end of the discussion, there was no purpose to the call. Right? We should always be doing something to move the files forward. Um, discussing the claim, the value of the claim, potential exposure. This is also something that should be done. I've heard clients over and over say, Shia, what do you think potential exposure is going to be? You know, John on the GL side, what do you think the potential exposure is going to be? Uh, what's going to increase it? What can possibly decrease it? All right, we know what we're working with, so we're just going to keep plugging away at um, the defense of the claim or we're gonna to try to settle it out soon, try to schedule a mediation or something like that. And 
We're also thinking at the same time, the pros and cons of settlement. Sometimes it's not beneficial to settle a case um, early on, sometimes it is. Again, it depends on the nature of the claim, the strength of our defenses, the weaknesses on the other side, what's going on with the workers' comp claim, the claim of return to work. These are all factors we're taking into consideration. I've had cases that settled just a few months after the accident because, you know, there really wasn't an accident and the claimant had returned to work and he's not receiving much treatment on the workers' comp side and it settles out for a nominal amount. And then I've had cases that are settling three or four years after the accident um, only because the record needed to be developed or there's a pending appeal on the general liability side, a summary judgment issue. And, um, you know, we, we, we get to permanency on the workers' comp side and the general liability claim is still going on. So every time you're having this conversation with your uh, the, the client and the counterpart, evaluate the pros and cons of settlement at that particular time to make the best decision as to what to do um, to potentially curb exposure sooner rather than later. All right, some examples of strategizing. Um, <clears throat> so one, one uh, as you know, the initial investigation that comes in, that's done in the very beginning. Your attorneys are going out or at least communicating with the investigator. We've used that initial investigation on the workers' comp side to contest an accident, to pursue fraud, to contest body parts. And keep in mind, it's not something that can be used in the very beginning only. We've used initial investigation reports like a year later when the claimant's claiming additional body parts. Um, you're like, wait, is this consequential? Is, it, is this direct? And then you go back to the investigation report and based on the mechanism of injury, there's no way that this body part can be, you know, reasonably found to be causally related to the accident. So, you know, having those in the very beginning, your attorney knowing what they say, having all the witnesses lined up, it can be used at any point in the litigation on the workers' comp side. Deposition transcripts, as I've noted, we can use that to contest body parts also, and mainly to pursue fraud. We've been successful with that. We usually get some pushback on the workers' comp side from the judges and the claimant's attorneys, but you always have to remind them that it's sworn statement made by the claimant. He was not under any um, pressure or coercion. He made these statements willingly, and now he's coming into workers' comp and testifying differently. So we've been successful with that, if not at a trial level, on appeal, they've been admitted into evidence. Uh, fraud findings in the workers' comp claim can create leverage for settlement in both the workers' comp claim and the general liability claim. Honestly, I think what happens is after we say we have covert surveillance or um, you know, make an offer of proof, sometimes we have to if it's not covert surveillance. The attorneys talk to their claimants and their claimants say, oh yeah, I've been doing this, this, and this. And the next thing you know, we get a demand for a very nominal amount in the workers' comp side. However, since our goal is always to do uh, joint defense and global settlements, this is something that's communicated with the GL side. And many times I've seen it trigger a mediation to try to resolve all of the issues together. Collateral estoppel. I currently have this issue with uh, one, of my, one of my clients, uh, a couple of uh, body parts and... Um, Traumatic brain injury and PCS have been disallowed on the workers' comp side. So they're going to use that 
on the general liability side to show that the issue has been litigated and the final decision has been made by the board as it pertains to the work-related accidents and the injuries arising out of it to try to minimize um, <clears throat> their exposure on the GL side. And as you know, TBI is a new spinal fusion in New York. Those are the ones that really rack up the exposure in those um, personal injury uh, construction claims. Um, another example would be <clears throat> the mediation situation that I mentioned earlier, uh, teeing up the, the workers' comp claim, presenting at the mediation, or at least providing information to the general liability attorney um, can help set the record straight. So these are some examples of how we can use the information in both sides to get the best outcome for the client, right? And we're always thinking about how we can help the other side. For these wrap-up clients, the OSIPs, the CSIPs, a bulk of the money is coming out of their pockets, right? They're large deductibles, 500,000s. I've seen some for like $2 million deductible. So we're really trying to save our clients a lot of money. And the key way, really the tried and true way of doing this is to do these joint defenses and do the global settlements. Next month, I'm gonna talk about the global settlements and we're gonna crunch some numbers and see how it really does help to save some money. All right, what's next? So next month, we're gonna talk about the global settlements and a reminder, I promise this to all of you, in November, we're gonna get the special uh, Kelly Burns webinar. Um, if you have any questions about that ahead of time that you would like me to address in the webinar, uh, feel free to send them to me. Um, and next month, it's actually going to be on a Tuesday. It's a Tuesday after the holiday, so you'll get the email reminder about that. All right, so this is all for today. Um, if you have any questions, type it into the box, and I'll take a look. If there's no questions, I will see you next month right here. All right, so I have one question. Let me see. So the question is, what is the benefit of an IME, a new C7, when the question is question of accident, as the IME typically makes this determination with the claimant's history? Also, benefit of IME without little or no medical. Okay, so there are two, two questions there. The first one is, well, why are we getting an IME if it's a question of accident? So, we're not getting the IME before this matter is actually set for trial. So that's the first thing that we should keep in mind. However, we have to tee up the claim, and it's really because of how the workers' comp system works. The law is you must get an IME within 27 days of the um, the, 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 the pre-hearing conference, and it must be filed with the board uh, three days before the trial, all right? So it's a very valid point because if the only issue is there was no accident, uh, the, the IME could very well find causal relation. So number one, we need to get the IME protectively just in case we later on get more information regarding um, the accident and it turns out that there was an accident, we should get the IME um, to also um, as, as a marker because if the law judge finds that there was an accident and then we also don't prevail on appeal, 
we will be stuck with the claim, but at least we have the IME from the very beginning um, with a comment on at least degree of disability or the need for further treatment. If we don't get that IME, we will be found to have waived the opportunity to get an IME on the medical portion. And then after appeals, if we have to go that route, we're coming back like six or nine months later, uh, benefits are awarded and we don't have any contradictory medical evidence. Now, how do we address this problem? Your IME cover letter, the questions you're asking your IME, right? And so this is why we offer to our clients who actually draft the IME cover letter, giving the IME uh, a summary of what's going on and asking very pointed questions, focusing on, you know, doctor, if there was an accident, what, you know, what, are, what, what's your, what would be your opinion and cause relation? If it's based only on what the claimant's telling you. If we have any other investigatory materials that we can send to the IME, fine. But keep in mind that anything that we send to the IME has to be disclosed to the other side also. But I do think the IME cover letter and the questions for the IME can help you get an IME that's focused on just the medical portion and not the causal relation portion. And, <clears throat> excuse me, we have been successful in arguing um, in court that because there is an IME doesn't mean the claim is compensable, doesn't mean the accident has happened. And you know what? I know what you're thinking. Claimant's counsel usually goes in there and they say, hey, you got this IME to find causal relation. We should establish the claim. Now, hold on. First of all, we have to talk about accident and notice and then causal relation. And the IME is based only on the claimant's statements and we have to take the rest of the record into consideration. We've seen a lot of judges really take this into consideration, even with an IME finding uh, causal relation. We have, um, we have gotten cases disallowed. Now, with regards to the second part of that question, the benefit of getting an IME with little or no medical, it's useless. I agree, it's pointless because it's gonna be based on only what the claimant's saying. So this is the reason why your attorney should be requesting that the matter be removed from the expedited calendar. Now you're gonna get pushback. Why is it, why, why, why don't you want it to be part of the expedited calendar? Like this is the law. What's so complicated about it? All right, it's a construction accident. Investigation is still underway. There's indication in the claimant C3 that he has prior injuries, or we have investigation that shows he has prior injuries, or this accident happened two months ago and the only thing that was submitted is one piece of medical from his doctor and the claimant claimed that he went to the hospital, he had surgeries, whatever the case is. Judge, these are the reasons why it should be removed from the expedited calendar. Judges are very understanding of that. And you know we do have cases where the judges are, are not removing it from the expedited calendar. And well, that's why appeals are made. So it's something we'd have to deal with on appeal. But I do agree it's, um, it, it is useless to get an IME without medicals. And this is why we should be pushing to get the medicals before we get the IME. All right, I think that's my only question. If you can think of anything else, um, after we sign off here, feel free to send me a message. All right, I'm a little stuck here, but that's all I see. If you have any questions, um, send me an email, give me a call and I will get back to you. All right, thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening. I will see you next month. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Take care.